It is so good to, to be here with all of you guys uh, today. Believe it or not, I was actually born in England, uh, in, in Oxford, and at the age of eight, uh, moved to Southern California. Uh, you never guess it based on the accent, but um, uh, coming here kind of feels like a homecoming, and to see what God is doing at the Creation Fest, to already get to meet some of you, it's just been uh, such an honor, and uh, I'm so thankful I get to share with you from Ephesians chapter 3. So if you happen to have a Bible nearby, uh, if you want to grab it at this time, or if you have like the iPhone app or whatever, uh, turn with me to Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. You know, for many, many years, um, scholars and thinkers have called the book of Ephesians the Alps of the New Testament. And the, the reason they've called it that is because the more time that you spend in this book, reading this book, studying this book, getting to know it, the greater your perspective becomes. Um, this is a book, as we've already seen, Brian alluded to it, Sarah as well, this is a book that centers our minds and our hearts around this theme of grace. Uh, back in chapter one, we saw how it's God's grace that has rescued us. Um, we've been adopted We've been saved, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we are loved, we are in the beloved, just like we sang in that song before I got up here. It means that we don't have to strive anymore for belonging. We can accept that we are accepted. In chapter two, it's all about how God's grace has united us. Uh, chapter two, verse 14 says that Jesus has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. I mean, in the first century, there were these major fault lines and tensions between different groups, racism, sexism, injustice, economic divisions. And Paul says, because of the gospel, we are now, quote, a new humanity, that all the boundaries and the barriers that divided us have now been torn down. Uh, the church, then, is this beautiful, flawed mess of broken people who have been accepted and loved by a perfect and holy God. We are a new humanity. Um, I pastor this church in Portland, Oregon, called West Side of Jesus Church. And uh, it's interesting, the other day I ran into this guy who I hadn't seen for a long time. He used to come to church fairly regularly, and I'm like, hey, where have you been? And he said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of drifting from my faith right now. I'm not really sure if I believe. And I said, well, you should just come back anyway. And his response was so stereotypical. I think we've all heard it a thousand times. He said, well, you know, for me, I'd rather not go because the church is full of hypocrites. To which I responded, well, there's always room for one more. We'd love to have you back, right? But that's the church. It's like, yeah, because of grace, we're, we're hypocrites. We have issues, but we are loved. We are accepted. There's a place at the table for all of us. We're in this thing together. So chapter one, is all about God's grace rescuing us. Chapter two is God's grace that has united us. And here in chapter three, Paul talks about, and Sarah did a brilliant job talking about this, how God's grace has given us a mission. Paul says, because of grace, I have purpose for my life. I don't have to go through life aimlessly or without hope or without direction, but rather he says, I have a call on my life to love God and love people and preach the gospel and join God in his mission to renew and restore all things. And you just think about this idea 
of how we've been given a mission and a purpose and, and how different that is from other worldviews, whether it's secularism or atheism, which says there's no ultimate meaning or purpose for our life. Um, there's this German philosopher that I was reading a few weeks ago uh, named Martin Heidegger. And Martin Heidegger, he, he once said that if there is no God, then the logical outworking of that is that we have no purpose for our life. And Martin Heidegger actually used this German word, Geworvenheit, which means, translated in English, thrownness. And Heidegger is arguing that because there's no God, we've been thrown into life, catapulted into life without any meaning or purpose or direction. We're, we're just an accident. In the words of Richard Dawkins, the universe is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. But the Christian worldview is entirely different. The, the Christian worldview says that because of Jesus and because of his grace, it's not Gavorvenheit. You haven't been just thrown into life. You're sent into life. You have a mission. You have a purpose. And because of his grace, every one of us here today, there, there's a call that's on your life. Grace is not just the opposite of, of secularism, atheism, materialism, but grace is also the opposite of religion. R religion says that the only way to get close to God is through our own efforts. But grace says that God has drawn near to you. Religion loves to draw lines in the sand and say who's in and out. But grace obliterates those lines and says we're all welcome into this family called the body of Jesus. Religion says that your dirt, your past, your shame separates you from God. But grace is God reaching down into the dirt and resurrecting us into new life. And there's this author, his name is Robert Copan. And he said salvation is not so much lifting ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It is an utterly new creation into which we are brought by our death into Jesus' death and our resurrection into his. It comes not out of our own best efforts, however well inspired or successfully pursued, but out of the shipwreck of all human efforts whatsoever. And see, that brings us to this prayer that Paul prays at the end of chapter 3. Because after three chapters of lifting us higher in this mountain of grace and giving us a perspective of God's goodness and kindness and how that distinguishes it from other worldviews, the natural byproduct of that is worship and prayer. Check out what he says, verse 14. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And I love verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Notice how Paul begins in verse 14. 
He says, for this reason, I kneel before God. And this is interesting because in the ancient world, uh, people typically, when they prayed or when they worshiped, uh, they, they would stand, sometimes with their hands lifted. But here, Paul says, I'm actually kneeling in worship and prayer. A couple thousand years ago, the only time you would kneel would be if you were before a king or if you were overcome with emotion. Think about when you're asking someone to marry you, right? You get down on your knees. Your heart is gripped by love. You're overcome with this sense of honor and respect and emotion for this other person. And I can just imagine Paul, he's writing this epistle. He's under house arrest in in the city of Rome. And he's on his face before God after three chapters of a theology of grace, three chapters of leading us higher and higher in this understanding of who God is, the Alps of the New Testament. And he reaches the summit and chapter three, he's like, all I can do now is worship. This God is so good because All theology ultimately should lead us to a place of worship. And if it's not leading us to a place of worship, then something is wrong with our theology. It hasn't gone from our head to our heart yet. And Paul, he just begins to launch into this prayer for those in Ephesus. And it's a prayer for us as well. He prays for a few things. Um, First of all, notice he prays for the power through the Holy Spirit in verse 16. He says, I pray that God would strengthen you with power through his spirit. In other words, he's saying, I want you to experience everything that God has for you. I don't want you to be complacent or apathetic, but I want you to go further and deeper and higher in the life of the spirit because God ultimately, even though many of us are camping this weekend, um, God has called us not just to be campers spiritually, but to be pilgrims. A A camper stays in one location but a pilgrim keeps seeking, keeps searching, keeps knocking. A pilgrim relentlessly seeks higher ground. Paul says, I want you to experience the power, the, the life-changing, transformative power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Bible says it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Without him, We can do nothing, but with him, we can do all things. And although it's true, when you come to Jesus, the spirit of God comes inside of you. The fact of the matter is there are times when I grieve the spirit or quench the spirit. And there are times in my life, I just need a fresh filling of God's spirit. Because when I strive in my flesh, when we strive in our flesh, it accomplishes nothing. Um, So I used to be a pastor before pastoring in, in Portland um, from 2002 to 2010, my family and I were, were uh, in Maui, Hawaii. I was pastoring a church in Hawaii, suffering for Jesus. Um, <laughs> and as a pastor in Hawaii, it was such an in- interesting experience because uh, every, every week it felt like a different group of people uh, because it has such a high turnover rate and a huge percentage of tourists. And the downside of that, it's really hard to build community. The upside to that is you can tell the same stories every month. No one will ever know. Um, But people love to go to Maui, Hawaii to get married. I can't tell you how many marriages I did. And if there's any other pastors in the house, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes these weddings uh, can be really, really good and fun and beautiful. But then sometimes these weddings can be really awkward and strange. I'll never forget one. Uh, This couple, they wanted the picture-perfect wedding. They invited about 100 people from the mainland U.S. to come 
to Maui. Uh, they had a videographer, they had photographers, they had it all set up and found this perfect cove in Maui. And they asked me to do the ceremony. And they said, okay, as part of the ceremony, um, we brought with us a basket. I'm like, what's in the basket? And they said, a dove, a live dove. And, and what we want you to do, pastor, is after we exchange our vows, you're then going to read this little poem that we wrote, and then you're going to reach in, into the basket, and you're going to release the dove, and it's going to be a symbol of like our love and two wings, one bird, two yet one, all these different symbolic things. I'm like, that's kind of weird. I've never done that before, but it's your wedding. Sure, let's do it. And so we're going through the wedding and everything so far was going really, really well. Um, And then it came time for the exchanging of the vows. I do, I do. And then they looked at me, okay, now's now's the time for the poem. I reach for this poem and and I read it. It's all about this dove and the wings of love. And when I get to that line, the wings of love, that was the time for me to reach out into the basket and grab the dove. So I, I reach out, I grab the dove, and I, I lift it up like this, and I, I say a couple other things, and I release the dove into the air. But what I didn't realize, and what they didn't know, is that somehow, some way, the dove had died. <laughs> so, so I'm like giving this whole speech, right? The wings of love. And at first, it looked great. Like, the, the, the dove's going in the air, and it's all good. And then, just given a few seconds, and the dove just kind of plummets <laughs> down to earth. It was the most awkward moment. Like, seriously, how, how, do, you, how do you get your way out of that? Like, there's no way you can spiritualize that moment. Uh, so I just kind of stood there awkwardly, and... Everyone in the wedding party, you could hear this audible gasp, and the videographer moves the camera away. It did not go how they expected. And, and after what felt like an eternity, and the dove's just lying there in the sand, the bride, she looked at me, and she's like, should we bury him? <laughs> I'm like, I guess. So we, <laughs> true story, we, we paused the whole wedding thing. I dug a hole in the sand buried the dove. (laughs) We put the sand over him. Like what started out as a wedding ended in a funeral, like the worst moment ever. And you just think about how many times in our life we're kind of like the dove, right? We're we're trying to do things in our own strength and our own power. Okay, I've got this vision. I've, I've, I've got this dream. I've got this ministry. I've got this thing I'm reaching into, but we haven't sought God. We're not doing it through the power of the Spirit. And how many times in my life I'm just like the dove? At first it's going well, and then suddenly it plummets to earth. This is why we need the Spirit of God. We cannot do this thing called the Christian life alone. And that is why the closer we get to God, the more we need to be connected to His Spirit. Paul says, that's what I want from you. I want God to empower you and strengthen you and fill you, that you're not doing this thing alone as you climb this mountain of grace, as you're learning to follow Jesus and know Jesus, you need more and more of him in your life. Amen? So Paul says, this is my prayer, that you be filled with the power of the Spirit. Number two, he says, I want you to grasp the love of God. This is where we get in some of the most beautiful words, I think, in in the whole New Testament. He says, I pray that you, verse 17, being rooted and established in love may have power. There it is again, power 
to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So he says, I want the spirit of God to be in you, but I'm also praying for you that you would grasp the love of God. And this word grasp is such an interesting word in in the original language. It's the word katalambano, and it means to seize or to attain or to apprehend. In the ancient world, um, the Greeks, they used this word for grasp to describe an Olympic athlete who's running this race and he has a prize that's set before him and he crosses the finish line and he grasps, he holds onto the prize. Um, I used to have this dog when we moved from England to Southern California. Her name was Rosie. Maybe you have a dog like this. She absolutely loved to play tug of war. Like that was her favorite game of all time. And she had this favorite rag that it didn't matter where she was in the house. I'd pick up that rag and she just somehow instinctively knew that I had touched it. And she'd come running from, from wherever she was in the yard or the house and she'd grab onto this rag with her jaws. And I've never seen anything like this. She refused to let go. Like I could drag her across the lawn. She's not letting go. I could lift her up like this. She's not letting go. Could swing her. No, I'm just kidding. But she's holding on to it. It's like this visceral grip that nothing could get in the way. And Paul is saying, that's, that's how I want you and God to be, where he's empowered you, but you're now clinging on to him. Catalambano, seizing the love of God, means that you've come to a place in your life, you've discovered the grace of God in such a way that you're never letting go. You've encountered Jesus in such a way that there's nothing else that can satisfy the core longings of your heart. You're holding on to grace. I remember when my daughter, she was two years old. She's 14 now. Crazy. Pray for me. Um, But when she she was two years old, uh, this was back when we were living in Hawaii, and she was really, really into Thomas the Tank Engine. Is that still a thing here in the UK? Okay. She absolutely loved Thomas the Tank Engine and uh, for years. And I remember buying her all these train sets. And she had these wooden tracks that were set up in her house. And she had Thomas and Percy and all these uh, tank engines. And I remember when she was two. And she's kind of at that age when, you know, temper, tantrums, and that kind of stuff is an issue. And I remember one day I'm sitting there on the couch just watching her play and she picks up Thomas a tank engine. She's frustrated. Something happened. Thomas wasn't responding in the way that she wanted. And so she, she picked up Thomas and she threw him against the wall. And I'm watching this unfold. I'm like, sweetie, Amelia, you, 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 you can't do that. Like, you, you can't have that kind of response. So I go to her. She's two years old and she's having this temper. And I pick her up. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to take you upstairs. And in America, they call it a timeout. I'm going to give you a timeout. You're going to go in your room for a while. And then kind of when you've settled down, you can come back down and, and play. And my daughter, she's like this raging extrovert. <laughs> she loves to be with people. Even at the age of two, the idea of a timeout was her worst nightmare. And so I'm, I'm taking her up the stairs. And I'll never forget this. As we're walking up the stairs, and I could just see the panic in her face. Like, Daddy, I don't want a timeout. I don't want a timeout. I'm like, sweetie, you've you got to have a timeout. And then in desperation, she grabs her face with her two hands like this, brings me really close to her face, looks at me with her blue eyes, and in a loud voice, she says, but daddy, 
what about grace? What about grace? And I I just froze in my steps like, what do I do? I'm a pastor, right? I talk about grace every week. And she's like, what about grace? What about grace? And I like took a deep breath. I'm like, okay, there's grace for you. So we go back down and we we finish playing Thomas the Tank Engine. I, I love how in those moments in our life, even when we've messed up, there is this thing called grace. And once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, once you've experienced his grace, it has forgiven you from your past and set you free from the power of sin and loose the chains of addiction. When you see that his grace has given you purpose and meaning and a call, man, you don't want to let go of that. Catalambano, Paul says, I want you to seize, hold on to his grace. And, and you know what's so beautiful? It, it hit me last night, actually, when I was thinking through this passage again. What's so scandalous and what's so beautiful about this message of grace is that even when we let go, even when we can't hold on, even when our grip gets weakened because of life or sin or things that we're struggling with, even if we let go, Jesus will never let go of us. Hebrews 11, right? It says, or Hebrews 12, we look to him, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And then it says, let us run that race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. In other words, Jesus ran the race. Jesus had the prize. And what was the prize? It was you. It was me. It was us. And Jesus has held on to us. He has grasped us. Jesus was the Olympic runner. We were the prize for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. And now we belong to him. And nothing can shake us from his grasp. We have been catalambanoed by God. It's the gospel, right? It's good news. Paul says, I pray that you would experience the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would grasp the love of God. And then he closes with these beautiful words, verse 20. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power. There's that word power again, that is at work within us to him be glory forever and ever. You know, the more that Paul was grasped by the love of God, the more he realized how indescribably beautiful God was. He says, God, you're able to do immeasurably, abundantly more than I can ask, think, or imagine. And that word immeasurable, it means limitless, infinite, beyond all comparison or even comprehension. Do do you see the paradox here? Because on one hand, Paul is saying, I want you to grasp how good God is. I want you to hold on to him. I want you to know him. But on the other hand, he's saying, good luck with that because God is so much bigger and boundless and inexhaustible and undescribable than any of us could think or imagine. That this beautiful paradox of grace, that somehow we could grasp onto it, and yet this thing called grace is vast and incomprehensible. You know, I think of Augustine, who was a fourth century theologian, thinker, brilliant mind. 
And the true story is told how one day he was walking along the beach, lost in thought. He was thinking about the Trinity and trying to understand how God is three and yet one. And as he's doing this and really going nowhere in his mind, he's like, I don't get it. I don't fully understand it. He saw this little boy. And and this little boy had dug a hole in the sand and had this big seashell and was running back and forth from the ocean to the hole, from the ocean to the hole. And Augustine stopped. He's curious. He's like, what what are you doing? And the little boy said, I'm going to take that ocean and I'm going to put it inside this hole. He was taking little scoops of water and bringing it back and forth. He's like, I'm going to take that whole sea and put it inside the hole. And Augustine laughed, and then he realized that is what he'd been trying to do with God. He had been trying to understand this indescribably beautiful God. He's trying to get God to fit into the little hole of his mind. And it was impossible because God, by definition, is inexhaustible and limitless and infinite. And Paul here, as he's worshiping, as he's kneeling on this mountain called grace, he's saying, look, the more I learn, the more I discover, the more I read, the more I pray, the more I see, the more I realize just how blind and ignorant I am. (laughs) the more I realize how much more of God there is to discover, how much more of God there is to experience. Brothers and sisters, faith isn't about containment. It's about possibility. Faith isn't about comfort. It's about risk. C.S. Lewis, um, he once said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew that a bottle of port would do that. (laughs) He said, if you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Oh, I love that. Hey, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, if you're going to go all in, if you're going to climb this mountain of grace, he's going to take you further and farther than you ever could imagine. He's going to stretch you and me. He's going to stretch us out of our comfort zone and then some, because that is the God that we serve. And what I love about these verses is that Paul here is kind of exposing the shallow, restricted, myopic ways that I think of God. God's a mountain. He's an ocean. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And how many times in my life, because I have a limited view of God, I have a limited view of what he can do in my life. Like, have you ever told yourself lies? I could never be used of God because of something I've done in the past, or I'll always have this addiction, this secret sin, and I'll never be able to shake it, or I'll never be able to forgive what he did to me, or my friend, or my dad, or my mom, and there's no hope. They'll they'll never come to faith, or I'll always be stuck in, in the same job, or this marriage will always be hard, and it'll never get any better, or man, I'm single, and want to get married. I'm single, ready to mingle. And it's, and it's not working. It's not happening. And I'll always be stuck in this place. And we tell ourselves these lies. We put up these walls and these barriers. And I think at the core of that is that our vision of God isn't big enough. You know, I talked to a guy, um, this is like six months ago now. And uh, he's been going to our church for a while. He's in, in his late 20s. And he's like one of these guys uh, desperately wants to get married. Every time I see him, he's telling me about someone new that he's dating. 
And uh, I saw him, and he's like, Dom, I just met this girl. We've been dating now for a little while, and man, she's awesome. And he's telling me her, telling me all about her. And I'm like looking around, okay, where is she? And, and he's like, well, she's not a follower of Jesus. Like, so you're kind of missionary dating. Interesting. We should have a conversation about that. And uh, he said, yeah, but you know, I, I, I've been looking for someone and in so many ways. She checks all the boxes for me. But then he said this line. He's like, Dom, to be honest with you, the reason we're dating is, and this is what he said, is because she's so hot. He kept saying that. She's hot. I'm like, well, so is hell, right? Um, <laughs> we need to talk about this. And, and so we keep talking and and really, at the core of it, what, what I discovered with him is that he had this view of God that was in many ways limit, limited rather than limitless. He thought, I, I've got to take matters into my own hands. I'm still single, and things aren't working out, and I don't want to wait on God to, to do something that I never could imagine or expect. I, I'm just going to do this on my own. And it's when we have that limited perspective of God that we're limiting what he wants to do in our life. Um, You've heard of Copernicus and how in the 1500s he was doing all this research about how big the universe was and advocating a heliocentric perspective of the universe and how everything doesn't revolve around us, which really kind of shook uh, the medieval theological, ecclesiological foundations at that time. There were a ton of people who opposed Copernicus, but he had an advocate, a very powerful advocate. Uh, he was an Italian monk whose name was Bruno. And Bruno, he, he made this argument. He said, look, Copernicus is onto something. And he, he's talking to all these Catholic theologians and thinkers and church leaders. He's like, Copernicus might be onto something. And, and I think that he's right, not just scientifically, but I think he's right theologically. And they asked him, what, what do you mean? And Bruno said, because there is no end to the universe then it also, by definition, means that there is no end to God. That God, by definition, is limitless. He's bigger and vaster than, than any of us could ever imagine. And, and the Catholic Church at that time in the 1500s, they disagreed with his assessment. They brought Copernicus uh, to, to stand before trial. They stripped him of his position, charged him with heresy. But at the trial, there, there was this line that he said, and it, it's always struck, struck me. Copernicus said in front of this group of men, he said, quote, your God is too small. You've had this view of the universe, this view of who God is, and and I'm arguing that God is so much bigger and broader than that. Your God is too small. And, And I wonder this afternoon, could it be true of any of us today, is our God too small? Have we been trying to control God, like Augustine, trying to get him to fit into the holes of our mind? Have we been trying to manipulate him or put him in a box? Have we had a myopic view of who God is? And what Paul is doing in these verses is he's challenging us, saying, what would it look like if you believed in an immeasurable God? What would it look like if you climbed the mountain and you saw the beauty of who he is? What would it look like if you stopped trying to control him and instead surrendered to him? What would it look like if you believed in the God of the impossible? And this is what I think. If we believe in an immeasurable God, we will live an invaluable life. 
that if we really believed in a God like Ephesians 3 is describing, I, I think we would worship more. I think our prayers would look different. We pray big prayers. I think we would take steps of faith. We would risk more. We'd be more generous with our time and our resources. We'd be more passionate about reaching our country. We'd be more committed to fight against injustice and oppression. We'd stop trying to control God, and we'd learn to stop rushing everything and trust in his timing for our life. Is your God too small? And what would it look like for us to let go of our need to control and instead to surrender ourselves to what he wants to do in our life. One last story and then we're done. I uh, used to be a missionary in a country called Vanuatu. I don't know if any of you have heard of Vanuatu. Uh, it used to be called the, the New Hebrides. Then in 1980, it became its, its own nation. And uh, it's in the South Pacific, middle of nowhere. Um, it's called by anthropologists and sociologists uh, the most primitive nation on earth. And I went there for about three years when I was in my early 20s, had to learn this new language called Bislama. Bislama is like this cross between caveman meets Tarzan meets pig Latin. It's like really fascinating language, very descriptive. Um, for example, the word uh, slingshot in Bislama which they used to kill things. There's no Tesco's where we lived in Vanuatu. So if you wanted to eat, you had to go kill things and eat them. Um, so they used these slingshots and they would say, Himmy one elastic blong shoot em pigeon. That's the word slingshot. <laughs> or my, my favorite word uh, in Bislama is the word piano. Um, you wouldn't say piano, you would say, Himmy one big fella box, where he got white teeth blong him, mo he got black teeth blong him, mo suppose you kill him teeth blong him, himmy sing out long you. That's the word piano. <laughs> so you can imagine, like, I'm there teaching through the Bible to a group of students for three years, and I come to the book of Romans and see the word propitiation. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's going to take forever. I'll, I'll never forget, I was there for about six months, uh, and I had this experience where I went for this long walk through the jungle, and I came across this hill that was overlooking a village. And I, and I sat on this rock overlooking this village, just spending some time thinking, praying, and I, I suddenly hear these shrieks and these shouts of men running through the jungle. Now, Vanuatu actually has the last reported case of cannibalism in the world. So when you're sitting there thousands of miles from home and you're hearing shrieks and yells, like that's the last thing in the world that you want to hear. And so I kind of look, I'm getting nervous, and they rush through the jungle, half naked, war paint on, spears in their hands, running right at me, and I just freeze. I'm like, what do I do? Like, do I, you know give him the cold shoulder, which is a horrible cannibal joke. Uh, like, how do I respond to the situation? But when I got there, I, I, I realized they weren't there to kill and eat me. They were there to have a spear throwing contest. Now, if you ever go to Vanuatu, you got to see one of these things. It's absolutely brilliant. Every year, the men of the village, they handcrafted their spears and they would take turns throwing their spears off the hill to see who could throw the spear the furthest. And so I'm watching one by one, they're throwing these spears off the hill and it was pretty impressive. They went, you know, 30, 40, 50 meters or so. And uh, finally, one of the guys, he looks at me and he's like, hey, um, do you want to try? 
And I don't know if it was pride, probably, but I'm like, sure, I'll give it a shot. He hands me the spear. They're all watching me. I grab onto this thing and I throw it as hard as I possibly can. True story. It went about three feet and flopped on the ground. Just (laughs) complete disaster. And they look at me and they just burst out laughing. It was the funniest thing they had ever seen. So I'm completely humiliated. I grab the spear again. I reach back and I hurl it. And this time it went maybe 10 feet, but again, just flopped on the ground. And at this point, there was actually one guy rolling on the ground with laughter. (laughs) Another guy was doing this chant. He's like, white man can't throw, white man can't throw. And so after what felt like an eternity, I just kept failing and failing and failing. This guy walked up to me and he put his arms around me. And he said, Dominic, white man, he called me, you're trying too hard. I'm like, I know. (laughs) And he said, the way to get the spear to fly is you've got to let it go and let the wind do the work for you. Stop striving. Stop trying in your own effort. Let the wind do the work for you. Then the spear will fly. Puts the spear back in my hand. So I'm like, okay, so let it go. Let the, let the wind take it. And, and I reach back and I threw the spear. And let me just say, I never became the man of the village that day. I never won the contest. But I had learned an important lesson that sometimes the way to get the spear to fly is to let it go. There are times in life where we've been striving, trying to contain God, trying to get God to do what we want him to do, But what if God is saying to us today, your vision for life, where you think you're called to go, the the mission, the vision that you have, it's actually way too small. Your God is too small. I want to do abundantly, exceedingly more than you can ask, think, or imagine. So trust in me. Look to me. Let the spear go. Trust in the wind of my spirit. Let me empower you. Let me strengthen you. Let my grace uphold you. And I will take you further and farther than you ever have before. Have you surrendered your life to a God like that? And if you haven't, today's the day. Now is the time. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. You shall be saved. It's not religion. Religion says do more, be more, give more. But Christianity says, no, you just surrender. You get out of the way and you receive his grace. What about grace? What about grace? It changes everything. Today, if you have not yet received his grace, I want to encourage you, open up your heart. Surrender. Let him fill you, let him transform you, let him change you, and he will do abundantly more than you can ask, think, or imagine. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand, shall we? Father, I pray right now that your spirit would just move in this place. If there's anyone here, Father, who has yet to surrender their life to you, if there's anyone here that has been holding on to their own vision for their life, but what you're calling them into is something so much bigger and broader than anything they could ever imagine. God, I pray that they would surrender to you now, that they'd open up their hearts 
and receive you now. God, thank you that once we've grasped grace, it changes us from the inside out. Thank you, God, that once we've tasted of your grace, there's no turning back. There's nowhere else we'd rather be than with you because you're good and you're, you're holy and you're forgiving and you are loving. And, and you, Lord, ran the race. You held on to us so that we don't have to strive anymore. So, Father, we, as we stand here, we just surrender our life to you right now. We let go of anything that we've been holding on to so that we can receive from you, be empowered by you. Lord, even now, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you take us further in this journey of grace? Lord, would you show us what it means to follow you? In Jesus' name, amen.